Traveling the Vortex Side Trip. Good evening once again, and welcome to another in our very, hopefully, exciting series of side trips on Star Trek. I am Sean from Traveling the Vortex, your resident host for all things Trek. And uh, again, by popular demand, we are back with yet more excursions into the world of my other favorite franchise. Thank you all for sticking with us. I hope you've been enjoying these. This is Star Trek 103, and uh, we're going to touch upon a few things that I've already covered, uh, most notably in Star Trek 102, which was a look at the original Star Trek films, starting with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, at the time, I had said that uh, the motion picture was rather slow and plodding, uh, but suggested that if you uh, were to watch it, that I would highly recommend the director's cut. Well, let me add a new caveat to that. Some of you know that I have talked about this over on my other um, podcast, Flicks with Friends. There is a new director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture that was released in time for the 40th anniversary, in which they've gone back and not only um, tweaked the director's edition a little bit uh, from what was initially uh, sent out on DVD, they've also remastered the entire fare in 4K. Friends, this is a completely different movie. If you have not yet seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, you owe it to yourself to watch this edit. If you have seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, you owe it to yourself to watch this edit. It is, quite frankly, complete. All of the previous versions, uh, whether it was the original theatrical release or the special longer version, or the original director's edition, none of them felt like it was a finished film. They all had uh, small niggling problems with them. Some of them were large niggling problems with the pacing and the editing. And as I discussed, you know, it was essentially a wet edit. The film was taken from Robert Wise out of the editing machine and uh, over to the, the copier where additional prints were run off and loaded into film canisters that were waiting on the tarmac to be taken off to... Uh, theaters across the country and so what we what we got when that movie was released in theaters in 1979 was very much a work in progress and it kind of became the accepted version a few years later on video cassette as that became a, a thing uh, Star Trek the special longer edition came out which included 12 minutes of previously unseen footage. And uh, I believe it was an ABC movie of the week, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been CBS. But um, they basically cut some footage back into the movie. This was still not complete. In fact, quite famously, there's a shot of uh, when, when Spock is outside the ship in the thruster suit and he's going to go encounter V'ger. There's a shot of Kirk following him. And Kirk, uh, the Enterprise airlock doors open, and Kirk stands there in his thruster suit and then rockets out to go get Spock. And there's this huge chunk of scaffolding and uh, a lighting rig over his head. And I always looked at that shot and went, what is the deal with this? Why does this look so weird? Well, it looks so weird because it was unfinished. It was literally the surrounding soundstage. 
they built just enough of the airlock door and frame uh, and then had Kirk wired up to uh, a joist in the, in the ceiling to fly him out from the ship. And the rest of that was going to be covered with a matte painting. And that painting was never completed. So you're literally looking at the soundstage. There's even a halogen bulb in the shot. And it's incredible to me that this made it into the movie and then was put out on videotape. And Paramount was like very proud of it, going, look, look what we've done. We've given you more. Um, there are some things in the special longer edition that, you know, can be said for it. Um, some scenes, some alternate takes, uh, and, a, and a few things of that nature. Um, all of which, in my mind, has been rectified by this new version. The new 4K version, first of all, it looks phenomenal. Uh, it's crisp, it's clear, it's beautiful. The Enterprise, who is very much a character, um, some people will complain about the flyby that Scotty does of the ship, uh, when he's bringing Kirk in, and why do we have this four-and-a-half-minute-long ponderous scene of them looking at the Enterprise? And it's like, well, because as fans, we've not seen this thing on screen for over ten years. It, it's it's due. We, we you know, we, we, we should get to relish in the beauty and the majesty of the ship. And it also ties nicely into the plot, because you're witnessing the the power of the Federation, the massive engineering ingenuity of humanity that went into constructing this marvel. Look at how big she is. Look at how grand she is. And then later, we see exactly the result of our hubris when she encounters V'ger and the scale difference at how massive the intruder ship is and the long flyby through it and it really puts things in perspective of you know the, the the awesome threat that they are facing that our ship is this tiny in comparison so i think that's a i think that's a wonderful contrast and it's a wonderful scene and it looks fantastic as i said the enterprise has never looked better and you have to remember this is in the days before cgi and uh, you know clicking uh, uh, creating a spaceship at the click of a button this is a model this is a lit model that had lights on the inside for all the windows. This is a model that had to be mounted on a motion control gimbal. This is a model that's, uh, you know, some six and a half, eight feet long. This is a model that they had to be painstakingly painted um, with that wonderful Aztecing and this pearlescent coat paint in order to pick up all of the studio lights during filming. So much time, effort, and care went into the creation of, of, of this character. Um, and so it's, it's really fantastic to see her in the manner in which she should have been seen. I was fortunate enough to actually go to a Fathom event and see this on the big screen, this 40th anniversary release, and was just blown away at, at how incredible it looked. The uh, editing has once again been tightened up. It's a little more concise. There are a couple of lines that have been lost that I really enjoyed from previous cuts, um, mainly because I've seen them so many times. Uh, that it would have been nice for those characters to still have a line here or there. But realistically, in the grand scheme of things, those lines were not needed for the plot. And so as a result of not only resequencing a few things, but tightening up the edits that were there, the movie feels much faster. It moves faster. And it is, a, again, a completely different experience from what has come before. There are a couple of new effect shots that have been inserted, uh, which 
honestly so greatly enhance my spatial understanding of a couple of things of what happened primarily as the enterprise moves through the you know the ship and um, uh, over V'ger and there's a shot then where she exits what is obviously the stern of this other ship and then flips around and kind of settles in behind her and you realize that I, I've been looking at this all wrong because, you know, they, they finish looking at the ship and it seems like we're done, but then they get tractor beamed into another chamber. And it's like, well, where did this other chamber come from? Well, it's because the ship had to turn around to face the rear entrance and V'ger essentially tractor beamed them and pulled them in through a hangar bay. That's, a, that, that's essentially what happened. And all of a sudden it just made the movie click so much more for me. Not that I didn't get it before, but I, you know, I was like, oh, that's what's going on. There's just a lot of attention to detail like that that is now present that was missing before. And it feels like a completed film. Um, it still retains that kind of ponderous nature to it, but it, it, it just it just moves much better as a film. And I think it's much more accessible now to, to today's audiences, let alone ones in, in, in the 70s. It's Star Trek. And it's great Star Trek, and it's it's an exploratory episode of Star Trek, and I cannot recommend it enough. Definitely seek this one out. Um, it, it is so worth your time. Okay, now that that has been recapped, we'll move into the Kelvin universe, or what's been known as the J.J. Abrams uh, films. I talked about Star Trek 2009 and how it felt like it had been taken off the shelf and dusted off and injected with a little bit of fun. And I still feel that way. I don't think it's aged as well uh, in the in-between time. It was released in 2009 and is now 2023. Um, so it hasn't uh, aged quite as well as I would have hoped for it to. But it's still, um, it, it's still a good movie. There are some flaws in it. And most notably as a Star Trek fan, as somebody who's you know really hardcore into these things, there are some moments that feel almost like it was written by somebody who had never seen Star Trek and then said, well, what do we need? Well, uh, let's see, we need uh, phasers and uh, we got to eject the warp core and blow it up at some point and uh, we got to do something with the transporters and... Um, oh, Kirk has to sleep with some alien chicks. And they went, oh, and a red shirt has to die. And they said, okay, and then wrote a script based on that. It sounds weird for me to say that, considering the last time I talked about it, I talked about how smartly it was put together from the standpoint that because it's an alternate timeline, and they acknowledge that right off the bat, it allows you to enjoy previous Trek and just keep moving. I still feel that way. I still feel like the, the, the working around the inherent problem in the room of how do we get people to accept new actors, you know, as... as uh, these Star Trek characters, how do we how do we get around that? Well, this is how you get around it. You make it so that they are, in fact, new characters or new versions of these previously existing characters. And that's very well done. But then there are some other things that just feel a little clunky, and it's like, well, this is only in there so that you can go wink, wink, nudge, nudge, look what we did. But overall, it's still a good movie. Now, when it comes to Star Trek Into Darkness, the second installment... I had previously said that it was a fine little action summer blockbuster, but it didn't feel like Star Trek. 
oh, how wrong I was. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I, I'm always trying to look on the bright side. I'm always trying to look at, uh, you know, the best of film, and Star Trek in particular. Yeah, I'm very forgiving of a lot of Star Trek. I have soured on Into Darkness, and so if Into Darkness is a particular favorite of yours, I'm sorry. Um, I never want to try and purposely ruin other people's good times, never yuck somebody else's yum, as the saying goes. But by that token, I, I could just no longer deal with the idiosyncrasies and, and idiotacy uh, that comes along with Into Darkness. The open is fantastic. The, the opening of this movie is great and pure Star Trek. And it's fun and uplifting and exciting. And, uh, you know, a problem on a planet. And uh, we've hidden the ship. And then this great reveal moment. And Kirk and McCoy and Spock and Uhura. And everybody's given something to do. Everybody's given a moment of exciting, uh, uh, you know, stuff to encounter. And it, it just overall works. Unfortunately, the rest of the film then kicks off. And it kicks off with, you know, obviously the elephant in the room is that it's the Khan storyline. And I'd said before that, you know, Khan is kind of sacred ground when it comes to Star Trek fans. Because Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is so good, why would you bother remaking it? Why would you bother attacking it? Why would you bother doing anything with it other than just celebrating it for what it was? That's a misstep. And in particular, the misstep with this one is, well, A, attempting to do con, B, feeling like you needed to attempt to do con, and then C, doing con badly. I mean, no disrespect to Benedict Cumberbatch, who's a wonderful actor and I love him, um, but there are so many inherent problems with the way this is structured. So we get Admiral Marcus, who is a member of Section 31, which is an ultra high-security secret division that was crafted to basically ensure, no matter what, the security and safety of the Federation. Okay, that's cool. We got a nod to that. This was originally brought up in Deep Space Nine, and they have been revealed to have a very long history. So the fact that we have, you know, brought them into the Kelvin universe, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. To end... He is convinced that uh, war with the Klingons is inevitable, and so we should be prepared for it. And his master plan is to go in search of the Botany Bay, which is the ship that Khan escaped Earth. Now, for those of you who maybe don't remember, Khan is a genetically engineered superman who took over the Earth and ruled one-fourth of it in the eugenics wars. The eugenics wars happened and ended in 1996, and then Khan escaped the planet shortly thereafter and was adrift in space on the Botany Bay until Kirk picked him up hundreds of years later. Admiral Marcus figures, hey, you know who we need. We need Khan. Let's go looking for him. So what you're saying is that in all of the parsecs and all of the history of space that you, 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 how many resources did you exhaust looking for this lost ship? I mean, this was a, 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 a veritable footnote in history. We didn't really even know the full extent of it until Khan himself told Kirk what had happened. They didn't know who they had until the library computer informed them, oh, this is who you brought over. 
But somehow Admiral Marcus has access to those records. Records that I'd like to point out, you know, the eugenics wars were a huge thing on Earth. We're talking World War III level devastation. We're talking, uh, you know, mass enslavement, mass murder. We're talking slavery. We're talking uh, all of this stuff. I doubt there were a lot of records kept and Khan in his escape. Let's keep that in mind. It wasn't like he was bravely, boldly going. He was running away because his followers had turned on him. There was an uprising that kicked him out of power. He did not file a flight plan. There's no way to, to, to backtrack this ship from Earth and go, oh, we know where they went and we know where it's going to be. But somehow Admiral Marcus and Section 31 have managed it. So right off the bat, our, our, our inherent, how do we do this? How do we get into the plot of the story? Right off the bat, it's flawed. I don't like that. He revives Khan and sets Khan to work on building a super starship that can handle whatever the Klingons can throw at him. Now, Khan's a quick study, but you're telling me that the first order of business after 200 years is to, hey, build me the newest, bestest spaceship you can imagine. His information's 200 years out of date, even if he catches up quickly, and he will. That, that seems like a pretty tall order. That seems like you have a lot of experts on staff that would be better in that position than Khan. Maybe as a military tactician, I could buy. Maybe you plug him in and, 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 and put him in, you know, war, war games scenarios where he has to fight a Klingon war. That I'd buy. But no, we want him to design the spaceship. Okay, sure, whatever. Again, your, your premise is flawed. Meanwhile, our intrepid crew are in trouble. Because of the adventure on the planet at the very beginning of the movie, where Kirk violated the Prime Directive by saving the natives, Starfleet comes down on him, and largely comes down on him because of a report that Spock filed saying, yeah, Kirk did this. Kirk is busted down to, uh, you know, uh, first officer and, and stripped of his command. And he holds a grudge against Spock for it. Rightly so, quite honestly. Now here's the problem with this. The original Wrath of Khan story works because it's the culmination of a 40-year friendship. Kirk and Spock have been there for each other. They have been through thick and thin. And when this ghost from the past rears his ugly head... And, and threatens the ship. They've got each other's backs to the point where Spock is willing to go, and spoilers again if you haven't seen it, Spock is willing to go and sacrifice himself to help ensure the ship escapes. And so the ending gut punch of Wrath of Khan is this huge emotional downbeat for very good reason. It's the end of an era. It's the end of this friendship. It's the ultimate sacrifice of one friend for another. Don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. I have been and always shall be your friend. All of that means something in the context of this larger tapestry of Star Trek. We get to the end of In a Darkness, and we try and replicate that moment. Only this time it's Kirk sacrificing himself for Spock. 
Oh, look, you flipped it on its ear. That's kind of clever. Except it isn't. Because just earlier in the movie, Kirk was mad at Spock. Spock damaged his career. Spock didn't back him up. Spock didn't have his back. Spock, uh, you know, uh, betrayed him, essentially. And it can be argued that he didn't know any better. Well, that's fine if that's the way you want to take it, but then don't try to do the Wrath of Khan story because the Wrath of Khan story only works as the culmination of that 40-year friendship. It doesn't work when they're still in the feeling-each-other-out stage. Again, your premise is flawed. Most egregious to my Star Trek mind think is the technology. And we've already established the Kelvin universe is probably a little further along on things than uh, uh, the, the, the prime. But Khan escapes retribution right off the bat by beaming from Earth to Kronos. He goes from the heart of the Federation to the heart of the Klingon homeworld via transporter. Congratulations, writers. You've just outlawed the need for spaceships in this universe. Why go explore anywhere with a spaceship when you could just beam wherever you wanted to go? They didn't think this through. They let the genie out of the bottle and just kind of ignored it. And it's like, that's not the way this advance in technology would work. Once you have that, for, for, and they, call, they keep calling it a formula, once you have that formula, you're, you're done. And yeah, I suppose it could be argued that Khan has it. And, and that he's the only one that has it. But you know what? If Admiral Marcus is capable enough to find the Botany Bay in the vastness of space, they're going to be able to reverse engineer the transporter pad. There's a record of, of this beaming technology somewhere other than Khan's brain that the guys at Section 31 are going to be able to to, to dig at and get out. So you, you have effectively, I mean, imagine there's a hostage situation somewhere in the galaxy and Starfleet can just beam in a security squad. Yes, it's cool, but it, it just it negates so much of the drama, the driving force of what Star Trek is. I don't like it. But most egregious of all is the ending. Kirk dies. Again, spoiler warning. Kirk dies at the end of the movie, as Spock did in Wrath of Khan. And we have to figure out a way around that. Now, in the original movies, we had a whole other movie, which was The Search for Spock, where it was revealed that Spock's essence was somewhere else and could be reunited with his regenerated body. We don't have that option with Kirk. He's human. He doesn't have a katra, and he doesn't have a regenerated body. It's dead. So what do we do? Well, thankfully... In a bit of off-screen shenanigans, Dr. McCoy had a sample of Khan's blood because he's a genetically engineered Superman. And then he took this blood, and you know what he did with it? He injected it into a dead Tribble just to see what would happen because that's, you know, sound science. And the Tribble came back to life. So then he injects the super blood into Kirk, and Kirk comes back to life. Ta-da! Isn't that great? How did we solve the problem? Super blood. 
Congratulations, writers. You've just cured death. Where do you go from there? Again, this is out of the bottle now. So within the confines of that Star Trek universe, no one can ever die. Now, we're not going to talk about it because, oh yeah, we let the genie out of the bottle, but the, even this huge revelation, we're only going to use it so far as, hey, we saved Kirk, and that's as far as we're going to take it. There's absolutely no way McCoy would replicate Khan's blood and keep it on hand to prevent any of his other patients from ever dying. What are you doing to me? Who thinks this stuff up? Huge, huge thematic problems. Um, there's a couple of things that maybe could have fixed this. In, instead of it being Khan, what if it was just one of Khan's followers and Khan was still sealed in one of those torpedoes somewhere so that you get the, the essence of the threat but not the threat itself? That might have worked okay. Um, the the or, or, origins of Khan being found, you know, again, that's a flawed thing from the get-go. That's not how that would work. So maybe uh, another little chunk of dialogue kind of explaining or we just stumbled across him. Okay, maybe that works better. A again, it's just problematic from the get-go, and it doesn't get any better. And as I've watched this more, and I don't watch it often, frankly, because it offends me so much, I feel like my intelligence is being insulted by this movie, and it gets to the point where I'm bored. And it's like, that's one thing Star Trek should never be, is boring. So if I'm bored in your Star Trek movie, man, did you did you did you fail miserably? But it hasn't aged well because every time I do try to go back and revisit it, I just find a whole new host of problems. That's like, well, how does that work? Why is this this way? You didn't think that through, did you? You just rushed into production to make a new Star Trek film, which is interesting because they didn't rush into production. That's one of the other problems Into Darkness has. It's five years later in the real world before. Into Darkness comes out. Sorry, guys, that's way too long in in a franchise. If you're wanting to, you know, strike while the iron is hot, as it were, you you, you got to get on the ball a little bit better. Now, part of that is the cast. They had other obligations. This is a big, well-known group of actors who are in, you know, everything. I mean, Zoe Saldana alone is in Avatar and Guardians of the Galaxy movies although she wasn't in Guardians yet at this point, and Star Trek. I mean, she, she's she's a busy actress. I get it. And so in order for all of these schedules to clear up, you know, that could probably take a little finagling. But still, five years between movies is unheard of. Uh, three years between the original Star Wars films was a long wait. But because of the scope of, of how big the story was they were telling, it was accepted. Five is is, is kind of unheard of. But that brings us to... Star Trek Beyond, released in 1996, <laughs> released in 2016 for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And fandom was not kind to this film. Fandom largely ignored this film. And there were a couple of reasons for it. Um, one, there was still some fallout from the the Star Trek fan film guidelines. Paramount engaged in a not-so-smart war uh, against um, Star Trek fan filmmakers because while Roddenberry and the previous regimes 
had always kind of seen fan films as oh, what what an honor that they love what we do so much that they're making their own stuff and yeah go ahead knock yourselves out guys suddenly there became an, an interest in well, should we be allowing them to do that isn't this damaging the IP because everything nowadays is about IP it's not about what you've created it's not about the art it's about the IP protect the IP intellectual property we've got a you know and Disney's infamous for this where it seems like there are no original ideas in Hollywood anymore so Disney's just regurgitating what has come before oh you really liked the Lion King here's a live-action version of it we're just gonna make the same movie again oh you really like Beauty and the Beast here's a live-action version of it that's where that comes from is not damaging the brand that is Disney because all we're doing is regurgitating things that you already like and know so Star Trek sued a bunch of fan filmmakers over their little projects and you know it became this huge thing and then finally they relented and said okay here's the rules here's the guidelines for how you can make Star Trek films within what we're going to consider to be okay not damaging to the IP and uh, the rules not that I have any desire to make a Star Trek fan film maybe someday I would look into it but I, I don't think I would do it under this current uh, you know throttle hold that they have on these things because of these 10 guidelines most of them are restrictively prohibitive to making a film and uh, a bunch of them are just quite honestly unfair to the filmmakers I get it you're playing in somebody else's sandbox and you have to be respectful of that but nobody you know on the fan film end was out there making Star Trek porn nobody was making anything that I think really could be construed as damaging to the brand you know what I mean so that section of fandom was upset another large part of the fandom was upset because Paramount didn't do anything for the 50th like we had a couple of prohibitively expensive pieces of merchandise that were released to celebrate the 50th and that was about it and that kind of goes back into the previous discussion about Paramount's never really known what they've had in Star Trek. They never knew how to handle this IP. Then there was the divisions within Paramount itself because apparently the split when Viacom got involved as the larger parent company, they split Paramount and CBS into two separate entities and CBS is the television wing of things and Paramount is the movie end of things and never between shall they meet but then you have Star Trek as a property that has a foot in both worlds and it's like well how does this work and there was a lot of back and forth on which division owned Star Trek which division had the rights to Star Trek which division could do Star Trek justice is it the characters or is it the stories is it the ship or is it the on and on and on and on and there's a lot of back and forth as to what that agreement is and, and how it was provided and what the actual engaging, uh, you know, guidelines for, for, for each film department are, et cetera. And I honestly don't think anybody knows. To the point where Sherry Whetstone, when she took over Viacom, one of her first priorities was to reintegrate those two entities and make it all, we're all under the same house and let's go do this right because she is a fan of Star Trek and knows a little bit about you know how this should work and when kind of I think she's the first person in the in the upper echelons that has really understood that this is a valuable commodity that, that they are squandering and that's evidenced now by the amount of Star Trek content that's coming out on Paramount Plus 
and quite honestly, how good most of it is. They have finally kind of figured out maybe this is what we should be doing with it. So, But that's another discussion for another short trip. So we get to Star Trek Beyond. And again, fandom's kind of like, meh. I love this movie. I absolutely love this movie. Everything that Into Darkness did wrong, Star Trek Beyond does right. It's a very loving, touching tribute to the franchise, to these characters. We get some genuine character growth. We see the fallout of these decisions being played out on screen while still remaining true to the characters. We get... Everybody gets a moment to shine. Everybody gets something to do. We get a much greater expansion of the Kirk... uh, uh, Excuse me, the Spock-McCoy dynamic. Everybody loved Spock and McCoy, and they were barely together in the other films. Now, here we finally pair them up and strain them on a planet. Like, here, here's some Spock-McCoy stuff for you. We love it. It's fantastic. We, we get Scotty in a much greater expanded role than what he had previously as a, an active member. We get a lot more Chekhov. Uhura is backed off a little bit, but she had kind of been the focal point of the previous two films, so I'm okay with that. Uh, and even, you know, Sulu's given some things to do. But still, Ram riding it all is Kirk. Paired up with that is we get some interesting new aliens, some fantastic makeup designs. My God, the special effects and makeup in this film are, are, are unsurpassed. And I will never forgive the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for nominating this thing for Best Makeup and then giving the award to Suicide Squad. Did you guys ever even see this movie? Because if you haven't seen all of the films in that category, you're not allowed to vote on it. But I guarantee you some people had not seen this movie. Because if you look at the wide variety of alien races on the ship... There's no way that this doesn't walk home with every makeup award ever invented. I love the music. I love the score by Michael Caccino. I love the direction um, by Justin Lin, who uh, probably is best known for his... He's the one that did the good uh, Fast and the Furious movies. Um, he gets it. He gets not only the action beats, but he gets what makes Star Trek Star Trek. And there's some wonderful new shots of the ship that, uh, you know, kind of kept it fresh and exciting. And then we get to the story. Now, yes, there are still a couple of little plot problems within the confines of the story. But nothing as egregious as what happened in In the Darkness. And what little bumps in the road that are there, I'm willing to overlook because the rest of the movie is so good. Um, I, I saw it in theaters and loved it. I went back and saw it in IMAX in theaters and loved it even more. Uh, I watch it regularly on Star Trek. I love everything about it. I love the production design, um, everything about this. If I have a problem, my only real problem with this movie is that it kind of follows that we're still echoing the original run of movies. Well, in the second movie, they did con, so we have to do con in our second movie. What happens in the third movie? Well, they blew up the Enterprise. Well, okay, let's blow up the Enterprise in our movie. It's it, it just kind of a, okay, guys, you can break away from this. And I keep hearing that if and when we ever get a Star Trek four, it's going to feature time travel. Why? Well, if I was cynical, I'd say it's because the fourth original series movie dealt with time travel. Um, but, again, maybe, 
maybe, maybe not. I, I, I'm kind of on the fence now and thinking, as much as I'd still like to see one, I don't know that we'll ever get a Star Trek four. I, I think the, the moment has kind of passed. The ship has sailed, as it were. But Star Trek Beyond is, I think, unfairly maligned by fans. I think it's a fantastic movie, uh, especially coming on the heels of Into Darkness. You know, a much, much, much better um, run at things. As always, we thank you so much for your support, uh, especially to our patron members who are getting to listen to this first, uh, because you guys rock. It's uh, all of our side trips have become patron exclusives, at least initially. And so we thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your support. And uh, as always, keep contacting us and let us know if you want more of these and uh, my unbiased opinions on the matters, or as I like to say, very biased opinions on the matters. Um, and I'll continue to do them as long as people continue to ask for them. If you don't want any more Star Trek, well, let me know. If there's other franchises you want to know more about, I could certainly talk forever about Quantum Leap if somebody was interested. But um, we need to know these things, so let us know what, uh, what kind of content you would like, and we'll see if we can't get it to you. Uh, another plug for Flicks with Friends. You can find us over at flickswfriends.com. It's my uh, uh, own review site, and I have had uh, Glenn and I haven't had Keith on yet. Um, I need to do that. I need to rectify that situation. I have to squeeze in some time to that. But we talk movies and how much we love them over there. And, uh, again... Thanks awfully. Be kind to one another. And until next time, live long and prosper. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied. Doctor Who Podcast Network.